one of my, uh, I, have a, I actually have a homework assignment for you guys this week. Uh, here's, I'm leading off with my homework assignment. My homework assignment for you this week is sometime over the course of your busy week so full of running here and there, I want you to pull your car over to the side and I want you to go for a walk in a cemetery. We've got just a few more nice days to do it before winter closes in and, um, and then it becomes very unpleasant. But I looked at the forecast, there are gonna be some warm-ish, sunshiny days this coming week. And on one of those days, I want you to just pull into a cemetery and just go for a walk. And as you walk among the quiet stones, I want you just to enter into conversation with God. Uh, one, one of the things uh, Sarah and I like to do, because we're weird, is walk in cemeteries. Um, I actually think it's a really great thing to do if you're struggling to come up with a name for your baby. If you're... It, <laughs> You can walk, go to like a really old cemetery, and you'll find some names that have not been in vogue for like a century. It's a great way to come up with a name for a baby. I also just find it incredibly helpful to my spirit, and I, that sounds weird, but it's true. I remember once on a walk on, through a cemetery in Connecticut, again with my wife, uh, we were walking through this cemetery in Connecticut, and I came upon a gravestone that said simply the name of the deceased, the dates of their life, and then beneath it, uh, etched into the decaying marble, it said, remember, you too shall die. I was like, wow. That is, somebody's preaching a sermon from beyond the grave. <laughs> I loved it. I've oftentimes gone for walks with cemeteries. It used to be one of my favorite places to walk my dog uh, before my dog died. It's now buried in the yard. Um, can we edit that out before this goes out to the radio? No. <laughs> Remember that time Josh just got really weird mid-sermon? <laughs> Started talking about his dog? Okay. There is no start over button on the sermon. But that's your homework assignment this week. Just go to a cemetery, go for a walk, talk to your God. This morning, I want to talk about courage in the face of death. Uh, I think when I was a kid, I, I knew I would die. I, I think there's a difference between knowing something and knowing it, right? Kids, I don't think, often think about their mortality, but I can remember the first time when it really, when death, the fear of death, really came home to me as a, as a boy. I was about 11 years old. My mom and dad called a family meeting, which my family never did. We all sat down at the living room, and I remember what I remember about it most was that my dad, who was also a pastor, was not talking to us, his kids, in his dad voice. His tone of voice, his posture, he was using his pastor voice. He was using the voice I had heard him talk to people after church when we were waiting to go home about something hard happening in their lives. And he was talking to me in that tone of voice that I can only describe was a pastor voice. My mom's eyes were red, she'd been crying, and they said that my Uncle Brad was missing. My Uncle Brad was my childhood hero. Just loved him. He was everything I wanted to be. 
And he had been living on a camp next to a frozen lake, and he'd been driving back and forth on the frozen lake. And he was missing. Uh, They found him in the spring with his fiance at the bottom of that lake. And I can remember getting that news from my dad and his pastor voice and just feeling like my inner world had been completely rocked. It was different than hearing about a death in the paper or on the news. It it was something that hit home in a way. And we all have those stories. You've all lost people. And as I've gotten to know you, you are a people well acquainted with grief. Nobody here in this room has not been marked by the horrible pain of loss or by the fear of your own mortality. I think in the church, we talk a lot, and it's good we do. This is not a critique at all, but we do talk a lot about living the Christian life. We talk very little about dying a Christian death. I think it's something, though, that we're all going to face. It's something we should talk about. And the Bible talks a lot about courage in the face of death. Quite often when I'm beginning a message, I feel like I have to devote some time at the front end of the message to what I call raising the temperature in the room. That's my term for it. And what I mean by raising the temperature in the room is simply the idea that before we study a portion of God's Word, I want to first awaken in people a feeling of urgency or need for whatever the topic is that the Scripture we're studying is going to be addressing on that day. I need to first, at least I feel like, I need to first point out why the topic is relevant and and important to wrestle with, and then hearts and minds are better prepared to interact with what we see in God's Word together. At least that's my theory. However, I got to tell you, I feel absolutely no need to do that this morning because the topic we're taking up is of such universal concern that most people are already there. What, what illustration could I use or to, to awaken in you a sense of concern about the coming day of your own mortality? I mean, I'm looking out over a group of people, and if the Lord should tarry in 50 years, 70 years, most, if not all of us, will be dead. It's just a fact. And that's a sobering thing to think about. A.J. Gordon kind of poetically described death as that narrow end whose windows open toward the sunrise and where the sojourner sleeps till break of day. He was speaking, of course, of the grave. Over the course of our lives, we try not to dwell too much on the fact that we're going to die. It's a dark topic. We all know death is coming. And there are a million reminders of it. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been driving and you, something happens and you're like, whoa, that could have been it right there. <laughs> and you're, you have a momentary rush, you kind of feel lightheaded and your fingers get tingly, you're like, whoa, that could have been it. We all know it's coming, but we try to shove it down out of our consciousness The issue of our own mortality, though, can't be sidestepped or avoided forever. 
We must look it squarely in the face, and it must be dealt with head on, because even now, the appointed day is coming when this leg of our journey will end, and we'll check in to that narrow inn whose windows open towards the sun rising. In the midweek email this past week, I was sharing about how I love, absolutely love that scene in The Wizard of Oz when Dorothy accidentally kills the witch. You remember? They're chasing uh, the witch and her henchmen are chasing Dorothy and her companions all through the castle. They finally got them cornered. And the witch takes down the torch and she goes to light the scarecrow on fire because he's made of straw. And Dorothy picks up a bucket of water and goes to throw it on the scarecrow who's on fire and douses the witch who, of course, melts. And there's that moment of suspense where, like, the henchmen who are just chasing them, what are they going to do now that they just killed the witch? And, of course, we all know what happens if you've seen the movie. They all burst into celebration. (laughs) Ding dong, the witch is dead. Witch, old witch. The wicked witch, right? There, I love that scene. It's hard not to love it. Like all great stories that us humans tell one another, The Wizard of Oz mirrors the big story that we're all living in. C.S. Lewis used to talk about how all of our stories are just an echo of the big story that we're all living in. And The Wizard of Oz is the same. It's the same with earth. The whole width and breadth of the land lies under the intimidating, menacing oppression of a fantastic bully whose name is death. We all live with the ominous specter of our own end hanging over us all the days of our life. In fact, we can be so worried about death, we, we don't enjoy life. Some people are, struggle with that. But Hebrews 2, 14 through 15 tells us something very interesting. It says this, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, that being Jesus, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. The wording of that is so interesting to me. Through fear of death, we're subject to lifelong slavery. Uh, Oftentimes when we Christians talk about being saved, if we say specifically what are you saved from, we say we're saved from sin and death. But one of the things that this says explicitly is that Jesus saved us from lifelong slavery to the fear of death. You, You weren't just liberated by Jesus through the gospel, out from underneath the threat of death, but actually the fear of it. Uh, If we think about it, um, if there was no God, fear wouldn't, death wouldn't be a scary thing. If, If when you died, you just passed into nothingness, death would be sad. It'd be a bummer for sure. It'd be the end of good things. But it wouldn't be a frightening thing. Death is scary because God is real. Death is scary because sins must be punished. 
And when we put the absolute finest point on the gospel, when we talk about being saved, I think this is very important for us to have in mind. What you have been saved from is God. It's true you were saved from your sins, but your sins are only a problem because God is righteous. He is a judge who will punish sin. And so when we say that we've been saved from something, really what we mean, if we're being completely honest and very exact in the language we use, is we're saying that we've been saved from God, by God. (laughs) That's the wonderful truth about the gospel. We're going to talk about this a little bit, but this is how we have been saved from lifelong slavery to the fear of death. Through the gospel, you no longer have to fear God. You no longer have to face the reality of a judge who will punish sins. Uh, Sometimes people will question the gospel. I think one of the best questions you can ever ask a non-believer is this, do you think that people who do bad things should be punished? Almost always they're going to say, yes, I think that's true. And then you ask, well, have you ever done a bad thing? (laughs) And if they're honest, they'll say, yes, I've done some bad things. Do you think the bad thing you've done should be punished? Yes. If they're intellectually honest, they must get there. You see, the thing that they fear is God. And if God makes us right with him, then fear of death is something that we can put away. According to verse 15, one of the things that Jesus accomplishes for us on the cross is liberating us, all of us munchkins, from lifelong slavery to the fear of that bully. So we can sing out, ding dong, the death is dead. Worship team, I want you to get on that. (laughs) Ding dong, the death is dead. That'd be great. Or as 1 Corinthians 15 puts it, death is swallowed up in victory O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? This is very much written in the spirit of a bunch of frolicking munchkins celebrating the death of the witch. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Ding dong, the death is dead. Christianity is a celebration of the end, the death of death. The bully has absolutely melted into a puddle of nothing to concern you. So far in this current sermon series in which we are studying what the Bible says about courage and fear, we have made the observation multiple times that we would not experience fear if we were godlike. All of us in our fears are sheep who wish we were the shepherd. (laughs) The reason why you experience fear, and we've made the observation multiple times now, is because you lack godlike powers. If you were all-knowing, you would never experience the fear of the unknown. If you were sovereign, you would never feel the fear that comes from not being in control. If you were all-powerful, you would never face circumstances that were beyond your abilities to fix. And if you were unending by nature, you would never fear coming to the end of your days under the sun. Fear is a product of facing God-sized problems with only the capacity and resources of a human being to address them. Uh, I'm not a science-minded person, but if I was going to create 
a formula for what fear is. Like, I don't know, I've seen, I'm not, I can't even pull up what the formulas were, but like you can come up with a formula for velocity. What is that? Distance equals space over time or something like that. You can come up with a formula. Here's the formula for fear. God-sized problems with only the capacity and resources of a human being to address them. That's fear. You fear because you can't do, you're not godlike. You've got problems that are bigger than you. And in the midst of those problems, you lack what it takes to actually affect change. Even the wealthiest of human beings experience fear. In fact, being wealthy and powerful probably only multiplies human fear. But one thing is for sure, if I was as wealthy as Bill Gates, I would have all kinds of new fears. <laughs> I would have all kinds of, I would have God-sized problems on a much grander scale if I was Bill Gates. But I wouldn't worry about like the transmission blowing up in my car, right? I would have the resources and the capacity to do something about that. But if I was on a smaller budget, that might represent a God-sized problem for me. There is no way I can come up with enough money to fix that. So we see that this is the formula. You've got limited capacity and resources to affect change in some area, so you feel fear. The society is slipping away from you. You feel fear because you're out of control. You lack the resources and capacity to change society. You look at the news report and you see what Vladimir Putin is up to and you feel fear because you don't have the capacity or resources to do anything about it. Fear, fear, fear. God-sized problems without the resources or capacity to do anything. You're not God-like. That's why you feel fear. But God allows his people to experience God-sized problems precisely so that he can be glorified in them. You lack God-like power, sure, but you don't lack God. You're not like a shepherd yourself, but you don't lack a shepherd. You've got one. And this is rather the point of Christianity. This is the rather point of the created universe. God created this world and brought you into relationship with him that he might be glorified in it. That is, who he is might be put on full display in our lives. Have you ever thought with wonder that when God led the people out, out of Egypt with a pillar of light by night and a cloud by day, he specifically is the one who led them, he brought them to the Red Sea, not the most direct route to where he was taking them. In fact, it's a dead-end street. <laughs> he brought them there where they're hemmed in, the sea behind them, Pharaoh and his army coming at them, they're dead meat. It was God who brought them there. Why? God brought them to a place where they would experience a God-sized problem. They couldn't do anything about it. The seas behind them. Pharaoh and his army are in front of them. There is no way to go. They are trapped, hemmed in. Fear. You must have been able to smell the fear hanging off of them in that scenario. But, of course, God did that. So that he could, for the very reason that he could show himself to be God. You think you're trapped. You think you're without resources. You think you're dead meat. I'll part the Red Sea. God allows me to experience need precisely so that he can show himself faithful to me in the midst of that need. And I just want to be without need. 
Fellow Christian, if you say to God, I want to be without need, it is like saying, I want to be independent from you. I want to be without a shepherd. I want no need for a shepherd. It's a bit like when uh, the prodigal son said to his dad, here, before you're dead, give me my inheritance. (laughs) What an insulting thing to say to your dad in the Bible, right? Like, can I have my inheritance before you die so I can go and have fun? I want to leave you, Dad, and go somewhere else. Can you just give me my money like, you, like as if you had died? It's a horrible thing to say. And if I ever say to God, I wish I didn't have all these needs, it's like saying to him, I wish I didn't need you. <laughs> Again, in the midst of our fears, all of us are like sheep who wish we didn't have a shepherd, who wish we were a shepherd. Whenever we find the command to fear not in our Bibles, we're encouraged to answer the temptation to fear by looking not toward ourselves, but toward our shepherd God with trust. Fear not, for I am with you, says our God. Not just fear not, but fear not, I'm with you. You've got me with you. His promises are true. He's the good shepherd, and we are his. And this is the essence of biblical courage. It's operating from a place of faith-filled trust in God, believing His promises more than what we see with our eyes. Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Hebrews 11.1, we walk by faith, not by sight. Now, I'm revisiting this point again this morning, uh, that we experience fear because we're not like God. Not because I need to get a certain word count in for my messages, and not because I think you weren't listening on the previous Sundays, but because of something interesting that our text for this morning says. I'll read it again. And as I do, please note that God's plan to address our fear of death was to become like one of us, a non-God. In Hebrews 2, 14 through 15, it says this, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Do you you see the amazing thing that's happening here? I never tire of the beautiful symmetry in the gospel story. The fall happened because human beings tried to, had a grasping desire for the place of God. They tried to seize, they tried to become like God and they fell. But here in this moment, God says, I'll become like one of you. The pride of humanity, the puffed up, I'll take the place of God, juxtaposed next to the awesome humility of Christ, saying, I'll become like a non-God. And then it says that through death, He might destroy the one who has the power of death. Uh, We're about to enter the Christmas season. My kids are already starting to create Christmas lists. We're almost there. I say, wait till Thanksgiving, or at least wait till we have snow for the first time. It feels wrong. But one thing that's cool about Christmas, I think one of the reasons why Christians celebrate Christmas is because Christmas is a celebration of the moment when Jesus entered the arena with death. This is when our champion stepped into the ring. Uh, We sometimes think of Christmas as being about a birth. It's actually about the beginning of a deliberate movement towards death, death on a cross. 
And so when I come to the Christmas story, one of the things that I think is important to keep in mind is that this is a celebration of our champion, Jesus, entering the ring on our behalf. He's going to fight for us. And this is when he steps into the ring. That's Christmas. So, since we're flesh and blood, he became like one of us, a non-God, stepping into the ring, that through dying he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and then it says, and deliver those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Uh, the gospel. This is how he does it. This is what Jesus does. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every single last one of us in this room has a sin problem. Really, to be, again, be more exact, you have a God problem. We've sinned. God is a righteous judge. We've got a big problem. Romans 6.23 says, though, that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. He doesn't want to give you what you deserve, a wage. He wants to give you a gift, a free gift of salvation. We could never earn it. It's too costly. But Romans 6.23 declares that God, who's rich in mercy and grace, is offering to us a free gift. We're all sinners. The punishment for sin is death. But in 2 Corinthians 5.21, we read that God made Jesus who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Uh, this is the great transaction. Jesus took our punishment on the cross. He took our sin, giving us his righteousness so that we could receive by grace through faith his eternal reward. We will all die. This is true. But because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, all who ask Jesus into their hearts as Lord and Savior can have a confident expectation of eternal life and a restored relationship with God the Father. You no longer have to fear God, and therefore, you no longer have to fear death. Death is just a checking into the inn. It's where the sojourner sleeps till break of day. It's where you rest until the promised day when Jesus comes back and the great adventure begins. Romans 10.9 says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But apart from a saving relationship with Jesus, there is no hope of salvation but only judgment and wrath. I think for possibly the most helpful insight, I said what we want to talk about this morning is how to die a Christian death, which is a bit of an oxymoron. If I believe the Bible, there is actually no death for the believer. There's the sleep, and nothing is died. I just uh, rest until the coming day of Jesus when the dead in Christ will be raised. But how do I face death? the reality of the end of this leg of my journey? How do I face the reality of death in a Christian way? I think for the most helpful insight that I've been able to find on that topic, we have to look at Jesus' last words from the cross. On uh, Luke 23, 46, Jesus says this. These are his, this is his last utterance from the cross. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. 
Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus' last words from the cross before breathing his last were spent expressing a courageous, faith-filled trust in the keeping power of God. He was about to check into that narrow end. And the last words that he spoke to sum up his earthly ministry was, God, I trust you. This is it. Remember, he had laid aside the independent use of his divine attributes. He who had been shepherd-like had become like one of us, sheep-like. And in so doing, he shows us how to perfectly trust God in the presence of a God-sized problem like death. Jesus' last words on the cross reveal a heart that was looking in trust toward the shepherd. In this moment, it was within Jesus' power to take matters into his own hands. Jesus was equal to God in divine essence and power. He could have taken matters into his own hands, but he had considered equality with God a thing not to be grasped, laid a hold of, availed of. And so instead of taking matters into his own hands, he said, into your hands, I commit my spirit. This is a powerfully instructive moment for all Christians who are struggling with a fear of coming to the end of their days under the sun. Two verses I've already quoted this morning are Hebrews 11.1 and 2 Corinthians 5.7. Hebrews 11.1 says, Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is the, very, this is the definition of faith. And in 2 Corinthians 5.7 it says, We walk by faith, not by sight. Death is a thing that makes us desperately want to see. We desperately want to see. I, I collect, I've shared with you before, I collect on my computer, I have a file of last words. And when I encounter a last word that I think is interesting or funny or thought-provoking, I put it in that file. I've been doing this for years. One of the ones that's, again, kind of macabre, this Josh Tate. <laughs> He's walking in cemeteries collecting last words. He's a dark, depressing, troubled man. No. One of the last words I have in my folder are kind of confusing and sad to me. How many of you know the name Henry Ward Beecher? Probably not a lot of us. He was a pastor and a theologian. Uh, his sister wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin. She's probably more famous than he was. But in his day, he was pretty uh, kind of a leading light in the culture. And a pastor and a theologian. His last words were, here comes the mystery. I've often reflected on that if that's just admirably authentic, like he's just expressing the human heart in that moment as you come to death, or does it betray a lack of faith and confidence in what God has said in his word? I honestly don't know. Henry Ward Beecher, I never knew the man, died in the 1800s. I don't know what he was communicating in that moment. But I do know that the Bible does not leave us with a mystery there's a confident expectation you can hang your hopes off of when you come to that moment. But death is a thing that makes us desperately want to see. We want to understand. 
Fear has a way of triggering either fight or flight in human beings. Have you ever heard this? That when you're afraid, you feel fight or flight. You either run from whatever it is or you you start hitting it with a stick. (laughs) And fear has a way of doing that. But with fear of death, I do think people respond to the fear of death with fight or flight. Maybe most often flight. We just bury our fear in a project. We go to a hobby. We turn the radio up. We scroll on our phone. Whatever it is to just shove that thing back down. We flee from it when it shows up. Some of us fight, though. Uh, They live their whole lives in a conscious fear of the coming day of their death. It affects the way they eat, the way they live, what they do, what they don't do. They really change their whole way of living because they're afraid of dying. However, the Bible calls us not to fight or flight when we're confronted with the ominous reality of death. The Bible calls us to rest and trust, which is not natural. In fact, it's supernatural. But God is most glorified when we rest in His promises rather than in our sight. Fear is rooted in a lack of faith, and courage, at least as the Bible describes it, flows from a faith-filled confidence in God. Death is in many ways the ultimate challenge to faith because it's the end of all that we love and see. And that's, a, that's hard. We want to see. Like I imagine if I was dying right now, and who knows, maybe I am. I don't know. But if I were, one of the things that would be very concerning to me is what's going to happen to my kids? Who's going to provide for them? How, how's that going to work out? I would really want to see that. I would struggle to trust God in that moment with my kids. Their whole lives, I've been a breadwinner, and I've been providing for them and buying them shoes when they need it and all this stuff. And now I'm going to die. What's going to happen to my six? That's what I'd worry about. I'd want to see. But faith is being sure of what I hope for, which is that there is a shepherd God on the throne to whom they belong. And certain of what I don't see, which is that the God who provided manna in the desert is going to show up to address the needs of my children. And I'm not God-like. I'm not the one that my children should be depending on anyway. I'm just the means of grace which has provided for them up to this point, and God will take it from here some way, somehow. Do I trust? You see, when I come to the fear of death, I really want to see some things, and God says, just believe, trust, lean on your understanding of who I am and what the Bible, more than my understanding, what the Bible says. As Jesus was approaching the time of his own death, he spoke these words of comfort and assurance to his disciples. And the very first thing he says, John 14 is where I'm going to be reading from, verses 1 through 4. The first thing he says to his disciples is, let not your hearts be troubled. Let not your hearts be troubled. Don't be afraid. And then he says, believe in God, believe also in me. This (laughs) this is the formula for courage. I told you the formula for fear before. This is the formula for courage. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe. Believe in God. And then he says, In my Father's house are many rooms. 
If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also, and you know to the way to where I am going. There is one great fear that is common to all men, which is greater than all other fears. It is a fear which paralyzes people all their lives. It's the fear of death. And when Jesus begins to address this fear in the hearts of his disciples, he begins by telling them, let not your hearts be troubled, and then believe. That is, trust, have faith. 2 Corinthians 5, 6 through 8, Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight, we are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Be of good courage. Believe. Revelations 21.4 says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. John 5.24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but passed from death to life. John 11.25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 14, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. In Romans 8, 38 through 39, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, in 50 years or 70, none of the ears who have heard this message this morning will be here to remind people of it. But your word is eternal. And Father, we have pinned all of our hopes in eternity on what you have said. Father, you are trustworthy and true. You never break your promises. And so, Father, into your hands we commit our spirits. Father, between now, this day, and the day when Jesus comes back, or we enter that narrow in, Father, we ask that you would use us to point others towards life unending in Jesus. Father, we, uh, in this moment, we ask you, Lord, to make real what we read about in Hebrews, that we no longer have to live in slavery to the fear of death. Father, grow in us such a, a confident expectation, a faith-filled belief and trust in your promises that we would not fear coming to the end of our days under the sun. 
Father, I pray that you'd free us from this fear, that we might truly live for you in a bold way in the midst of these days. Father, there have been so many missionaries who went afield having wrestled with the fear of death, going into dangerous places, dangerous circumstances. Father, this is a great bully that keeps so many Christians from living the Christian life, from following you in obedience where you've called them to. It was fear of death that made the Israelites turn back from the promised land. It was fear of death that Esther had to put away from herself when she said, I'll go to the king, and if I die, I die. It was fear of death that they tried to wield against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Father, surely this great bully wants to keep us from following you by making fear of that death central to how we live. And Father, I pray that you would, we would make your promises and the certainty of a coming reward central to our lives. Father, I think of the people in Hebrews 10 who cheerfully accepted the loss of property, businesses, imprisonment, even death, because they believed that they had a better and an abiding possession in Christ and in eternity. Father, I pray that we would live in such a way that states plainly to a watching world, they can have this world, we'll take the next. Father, free us from living under the fear of this bully so that we might truly live for our Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.